Well, hello, everybody. This is Chooch. You're listening to Beyond the Wall, and this is our special, exclusive George R.R. R. Martin interview from Mysticon, brought to us by Podcasting's Rich Siegfried. He was kind enough to record this at Mysticon and give it to us and the fine folks at geekradiodaily.com to, uh, yeah, get a little exclusive interview. This is really fun. It's about an hour long. There's a great lightning round up front of, you know, some of the most common questions George gets, you know, his favorite character, where his ideas come from, that sort of thing. Uh, a whole bunch of his John Dead, since this was recorded before the season premiere. Some great things about his writing process, a little bit about old Valyria, his characterizations, and, you know, a little bit of everything. So we're heading off to Balticon 50, where Sir George is the guest of honor this year. As the 50th anniversary, they're bringing back as many past guests of honor as they could. So joining Mr. Martin will be Connie Willis, Larry Niven, Charlie Strauss, Harry Turtledove, Phil and Kaja Folio, Peter S. Beagle, Joe Halderman. I mean, a whole bunch of names of people that I don't know, and I know I should because, hey, they were guests of honor. But anyways, we'll be bringing back our live Beyond the Wall panel from Balticon 50 that we'll be recording Saturday at 6 p.m. if you're going to be there in the Kent room. Although it's entirely possible that this will come out after we've already recorded it, so yeah. Well, hey, covering all the bases. Without further ado, here is George R. R. Martin, recorded at Mysticon the weekend of February 26th, 2016. Name of you, and, and you actually fed me a pastry. I, I fed you a pastry, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm blank on this. Was it a pastry it, it was a very tasty pastry. Um, I, I uh, sampled it before you did, so that way we made sure that uh, nobody would try to kill you off before you finished oh, the book. Okay. You, were, you were my taster. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I'm also available for booze, if anybody offers that to you. Um, but as you can see, I am still alive, so he is a sweetheart of a man. Even though... He kills off the people we love. So we don't want you guys when it comes kill to... Kill off the ones you hate, too. Yeah. Yeah. All men must die. In fairness, either you or natural causes. It's going to happen. Um, but so I want you guys to know when it comes time to, for you guys to ask questions and stuff like that, uh, feel comfortable, feel, uh, feel good about it, because this man is... Uh, uh, he's dangerous, but a sweetheart. Um, now, I know that uh, you've done approximately 1,400 of these Q&As by now. Is that about right? Well, certainly 1,400 interviews. I don't know if I've done 1,400 Q&As, but there's certainly a lot of interviews with journalists and, and uh, you know, hmm. online journalists and journalists for newspapers, journalists for magazines, television journalists, you, you name it. And you can tell by the fact that his voice went down. He's probably heard a lot of questions. So... I know that there are a lot of common questions that you're asked. So what I want to do is I want to do just a quick lightning round. We'll knock those out of the way, and that way we don't have to worry about them. Okay. You game for that? This is all about the NFL, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So how do you feel about the zone uh, defense? That, that's a, that's a sports ball thing, right? You think Potter's going to take it in the uh, Quidditch Cup? Um, all right, so... Pretty sure he's gonna. <laughs> Alright, so that is uh, the stupidest game. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you 
have all these other people flying around and, and, and trying to score goals when all that matters ultimately is the is the little stupid golden ball with the wings on it. You <laughs> completely defeat the, the, the other team. I mean, uh, it's a terrible thing, sport. Terrible. It's essentially like flying curling, I think. No. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize a lot of curling Other, uh, you know, we're, we're a, a little golden thingy comes in. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're right. I don't know why anybody focuses on anything other than just standing around waiting for that damn thing to come out. And aren't well, there like three of them floating around? 50 points and <laughs> it completely, you know, wipes out all of the others. <laughs> It's like, you know, playing the Super Bowl, uh, Super Bowl, and, uh, you know, you play a regular game, and then, you know, with five minutes left, someone hits a golf ball. And... <laughs> <laughs> Whoever catches that wins the game. <laughs> Hold on, you may be onto something. Are there golf clubs involved in this? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All right, oh, yeah. so, like I said, we want to do a quick lightning round where we're not, uh, taking care of a lot of the uh, common common questions and just answer like one or two words or a sentence, but we'll try to knock through these really quick. Okay, are you ready? Sure. All right. How do you come up with your ideas? I think of <laughs> <laughs> When is the next book coming out? When is it? When did Sir Verb of Noun do that thing to that character I liked? Why did you do that? Uh, before. Okay. <laughs> is Jon Snow dead? <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I didn't actually explain the rule. You can pass on any of these. Uh, do you watch the TV show? Sure. Do you like the TV show? Sure. Thank God he didn't pass on that one. Uh, no, really, is Jon Snow dead? Who are, who are you happiest to kill off? All men must die, I told you. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, who are you happiest to kill off? Any, any particular? It's hard to kill off any of them. They're my children. Nobody knows it's hard to kill your children. <laughs> Hold on, don't awe that. We've all seen your Facebook posts. <laughs> Alright, uh, uh, do you know how it's going to end? Sure. Who, who is your favorite character? Tyrion. <laughs> who is your least favorite character? I don't really have a least favorite. Bran is the hardest to write. And of course, the final question is Jon Snow dead? <laughs> no, but you will be soon. <laughs> well, in fairness, George, all men must die. <laughs> all right. All right, so we did that in approximately uh, like 30 seconds. Well done. Well, all right, so now uh, uh, he will make fun of you if you ask any of those questions, all right? Okay, so we've got that settled out of the way. Uh, first, before we get into a lot of the ice and fire stuff, I'd actually like for folks to get to know you, the man. We already know so much about you, the the, the artist and, and the creator of, of one of the, the deepest, uh, most beloved fantasy universes ever. But let's talk about you. What, did, what about writing uh, really uh, drew you to that as an art form? You know, I've been making up stories since I was a little kid. Um, it's not the kind of career choice that you make in a rational mind, uh, weighing the alternatives and saying, what, what am I good at? It's, it's almost like something you have to do. I mean, I remember, 
Uh, and, and indeed, I still have because I'm a pack rat, little, little school notebooks where I was writing down stories and, and uh, adventures of my pet turtles um, <laughs> um, and uh, of my toys, my, my space toys that I got to when, you know, from the Woolworths and the Five and Dime, uh, little aliens that uh, came out in the 50s. You could buy for 15 cents each. And I collected the whole set and decided they were a gang of space pirates and I gave them all names and I had them have adventures and etc. etc. And it, it's, I've just ha always had these imaginings, these uh, fevered uh, desires to tell stories and to make up stuff. Um, I suspect I would do it even if I didn't get paid for it. Uh, just because it's, I don't know, something, something is part of me, something I, that I have to do. Of course, I do like the part of getting paid for it, <laughs> especially, you know, since I went through the early tough years where I hard to make ends meet and could I meet my mortgage. That was, that was uh, the tough years, and now I'm in the giant dump trucks of money full up to my house. <laughs> That's the better better time. Uh, you just made a house out of $100 bills, correct? Right. Basically, yeah. Um, it's the paper throne. But, you know, it's, it's... Every once in a while, a writer gets lucky, as I have, and you get hit by lightning and you do that, but it's not something that you, you uh, should do because you want to become rich and famous. Um, because that's like getting hit by lightning, uh, and uh, it's it's something you do because it's in your blood, it's in your it's in your mind. It's you you must be a little crazy to do it, and I am a little crazy. So there we go. <laughs> well, since you've been able to harness your your writing talent, have you noticed any kind of changes in your life? Like, uh, do you see things differently, or do you just in, uh, interpret things the same way, just with more verbs and adjectives? <laughs> Well, there's always changes in your life. I, I don't think it has anything necessary to do with writing. It has to do with living. And we've all had changes in our life. We get older. We have experiences. It changes the way we do things. The world changes around us. Um, and the, the difference is that a writer uh, maybe reflects on these changes and reflects on his experiences. And, and you know, you, you write about them. You make stories out of them, out of the things that you're you're living. Um, I think to be a good writer, it is necessary to, to uh, number one, to live. Um, that's why you often see, you know, on the the by the the, the uh, cliche biography of a writer that you see on the the dust jacket flap. You know, he's been a shrimp fisherman and a deep sea diver and a golf pro and a mercenary in the Congo. Uh, you know, he's been all those things for about 12 minutes, but uh, usually, but yeah, but that's a good kind of biography of writer because you get to see different, meet different people, experience different things of life. It's, it's, it's kind of grist for the, for the mill. Um, but it's also, you, you don't really need to do be a shrimp fisherman. Um, what is necessary is whatever you are, um, be it a, a school teacher or um, um, work in an office or work at a Starbucks or whatever, you have to examine it, you have to think about it, and you have to be willing to, to put, it, um, put it on paper, let other people see it, uh, including the emotional parts of it, the, the, you know, the, the things that 
made you laugh and the things that hurt you and the, the things that uh, wounded you and uh, the things that you did that wounded other people. You have to examine your life and there's a certain amount of exposure to being a writer, a vulnerability. You're, um, you're showing all of that and that's, to be a good writer, I think you need to, you need to do that. Well, with, with that kind of vulnerability, um, <clears throat> what do you do to, to relax after like a really good writing session, whether it's, you know, going into some hardcore battles or a character that, that you really dig is doing some uh, really heinous things? How do you kind of get that out of your brain? Well, ideally, I don't. I mean... Well, just for the time the, being, not forever. But. The, best, the best part is when I can't get it out of my brain. I mean, I, like any writer... Well, I shouldn't say like any writer. Writers are different, but some writers are automatons. They sit down every day and they do like six pages a day, rain or shine, no matter where they are, what's happening in their life. That's never been me. Um, I can struggle to get into a thing at first, but when I'm when I am into it, and when it's coming really well, I'm like living it. It's the rest of the world goes away, and I'm living in Westeros or wherever I'm writing about. And you know, I wake up thinking about it. I go to sleep thinking about it. I spend all day thinking about it. It doesn't get out of my brain. The rest of the world gets out of my brain. Indeed, the worst thing is when it does get out of my brain, when something <clears throat> intrudes, something in my real life uh, takes my attention away for a significant length of time or in a significant manner, and suddenly I've lost the thread, and it's hard to get it back. Um, so... But again, that's just me. That's the way I work. And have your friends and family kind of uh, learned to adapt to that that process, where making sure, like, if if, if George is writing, just everybody leave him alone. Well, I but I try to some extent. Um, it's actually not been easy in recent years. It's probably one of the reasons the books are so slow. Um, I, I I mean, I was joking about the dump trucks full of money. Um, but success comes with its own demands. And the fact that these books have been so successful um, has made my life a lot more complicated. Um, I, I used to be just a writer, working all alone, you know, and writing is, you know, there's the creative aspects of writing, but there's also non-creative aspects of writing, like, you know, keeping keeping your files and keeping up with your correspondence, talking to your agents and, and uh, your editor and um, filing your taxes and you know, <laughs> keeping your records for your taxes, balancing your checkbook, all of the normal things that everybody has to do. Um, when you reach a certain level of success, these things become far more complicated. Suddenly, you don't just have an agent you have to talk to, you have a literary agent, and you have a games agent, and you have a Hollywood agent, and you have a foreign agent, and you have a British agent uh, who your foreign agent corresponds with, and, and you have an editor in this country, an editor in that country, an editor in the other country, and they're all writing you emails that's coming in every day, and you don't just have one checkbook, you have 12 checkbooks, and you have a broker, and you have a business manager, and you have, uh, you know, it gets bigger and bigger. I, I hired... About seven or eight years ago, I reached a point where I actually had to hire an assistant for the first time in my life. Right now, I have five assistants, and they can barely keep up with uh, you know the flood of uh, stuff that's coming in. And all of this makes it all of this is distracting. Um, 
you know, I, I you try to put things on other people and, and delegate authority to other people, and that works to some extent, but then, then things escape your notice or things go wrong, and then you have to kind of fix them. I, I, don't, I haven't found the answer yet, but we, we do our best. We do our best. So I, I wanted to. I know it's a problem that ninety-nine percent of the writers in the world would love to have, <laughs> which doesn't mean it's not a problem. But it's you know, if any of you ever uh, you know follow in my still footsteps in that regard, <laughs> beware. <laughs> but it's also good that people know that stuff because it's easy. Um, it's easier for fans to, to see you and be like, oh, well, maybe if you stop doing cons or if you stop doing this, why don't you just, I want my thing. And now they know that, like, no, no, the reason why you love it is the exact reason why the next one's delayed. And so that, that is an interesting kind of, of, of a handoff, you know. And, and it sounds like you're trying to find that balance with the assistants. Now, obviously, you can't find an assistant for the writing portion of it. Uh, I think a lot of people would easily raise their hands to volunteer for that. But obviously, you want to no, maintain the something I'm not so. willing to do. Uh, well, yeah, because that's, that's the fun part for you, right? Although there are writers who do have assistants for that part. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, uh, you look at somebody like James Patterson, uh, who's, who's become, um, you know, he's the, he, he makes more money than any other writer in in the world, perhaps. Um, I think Forbes had an article a couple years ago about the most successful writers in, in the country, and, you know, I think number two was Stephen King at, like, making $30 million the previous year, and number one was Patterson making $90 million, so three times as much money as Stephen King. How does he do that? Well, he, he comes out with nine books a year, all of which are written by various partners and collaborations. He's got a he's got a factory of I don't know if he has all of his these guys chained to desks. Producing first drafts that he then sprinkles his magic fairy dust over. I don't know exactly how he does it, but uh, but he does do it and therefore produces this huge steady outpouring of novel after novel after novel, all of them mega bestsellers. So but I can't do that, and we'll do that. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. Exactly, yes, applaud that. Well, now, with, with uh, all, all the time that you have to spend with, uh, you know, managing uh, everything and writing, how do you recharge? Is there anything in particular that you do? Is, do you watch TV? Do you read other things? Do you yeah, I, kick I, puppies? What do you do? I do the, the same thing that I always do. I read a lot. I watch television. I watch movies. Well, there any particular? Um, are there any particular? Fans? I own a movie theater, so that's um, <laughs> fun. I talk to my manager. I mean, I don't run it or anything, but uh, I, since I own it, I can say, "Hey, I want to see Forbidden Planet." No book, Forbidden Planet. Uh, but uh, mostly, you know. But I do go down there and see what they're showing. That's fun. That's and awesome. I have the feeling I'm giving something back to the community. Yeah. Yeah, I can feel that uh, when you have the kind of Good fortune that I've had, and especially in the last decade, uh, that you should give something back um, to the community that you live in. And I, I live in a number of communities. I try to do a lot of things for Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is the town I've lived in since 1979. And uh, the theater is, is part of that. Um, 
a lot of people like having that theater open again. It was closed for seven years, and I'm gratified by that. But also Fandom, uh, which is uh, another community that I've been part of even longer. I went to my first convention in 1971, so, you know, you give something back. Now, the movie theater, is it a more modern movie theater, or is it uh, like an old-school renovation? It's a small art house. It was originally opened in 1977, went dark in uh, 2006, and it was dark for seven years till I bought it and reopened it in 2013. Single screen, art house, 125 seats. Nice. That was awesome. Now, you, you mentioned fandom. Are there any particular fandoms that you are hardcore about, kind of like the folks in here are uh, for your work? Is there anything like Star Wars, Star Trek? I'm a book guy. I mean, it's traditional science fiction fandom that I'm, I mean, I, I of course, I've watched Star Trek. I've watched Star Wars. And I've watched many science fiction movies and television shows over the years, but I'm, I'm not a particular, you know, single fandom fan. I'm a fandom of science fiction and fantasy and uh, the, the, the fan community that uh, really started in the 1930s and uh, first Worldcon in 1939 and has continued to this day and all these regional conventions like Mysticon here are in some senses uh, offspring of that original uh, 1930s science fiction fandom that started and you're all the descendants of the uh, the people who uh, started that thing and I, I very much consider myself part of that community. So with the science fiction is it uh, like the atomic atomic age science fiction or uh, or space invaders kind of science fiction what what's the what's the stuff you dig the most? You know I, I've, I've always liked uh, I don't really call it space opera because I like a little more thoughtful, but certainly far future, out among the stars kind of science fiction. I mean, I read it all and I admire if it's well done, it'll all. You know, the, the old wave, the new wave, uh, the cyberpunks, all of this stuff. But I've never liked the, you know, five years in the future kind of. Uh, science fiction as much as I've liked 500 years in the future and we're out among the stars and etc. That's it appeals to me more. Is it the escapist aspect of it? So it's not something that's closer to what we deal with every day? It's it's the exotic quality of it. Um, I, I like seeing different worlds, different ways of looking at life, um, different kinds of life. I think some of this is the, you know, vicarious travel. Uh, growing up in Dale, New Jersey, I've often talked about this, but uh, our family was had no money, so I lived, uh, we lived in the, in the housing projects on 1st Street in Dale, New Jersey, and my school was on 5th Street. We didn't own a car. Um, so really, I lived in a world that was five blocks long. I, I never got to go anywhere, except in my mind. Um, and... That was pretty cool because I could read comic books and go to Gotham City and Metropolis, and uh, I could read science fiction books and go to Barsoom or Trantor or uh, whatever, all these distant worlds or the distant past, uh, the distant future. Um, and I still like that sense of, uh, even though now I'm at a place in time in my life where I can travel the world and go to Switzerland or Germany or Finland or 
New Zealand, all places I've been to in the last few years. Um, I still like to go to Barsoom <laughs> as well. And all the wonderful world of Jack Vance, he's one of my favorite writers. I like that exotic quality. The erotic quality is good too. But you know, <laughs> I don't that quite so often. <laughs> Well, uh, I want to ask you just uh, maybe one or two more questions, then we'll open it up to the, the, the folks who, who waited in line for a while to come in and chat with you. Um, so what was the, when, when that first dump truck full of money rolled up, what was, what was the, the first big ticket thing that you purchased for yourself? Not, not something that you, you had to buy for survival or anything like that. What was that, that first thing that you bought that was just for joy? <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I, I think it it depends on what you consider the first dump uh, truck full of money. <laughs> you know, the thing about being a writer, and it probably any of you in this room who aspire to be writers, okay, thank you. Um, well, I think you scared the rest off earlier. <laughs> I'm going to try to scare those off. That's <laughs> what he does, man. He just weeds out the competition. <laughs> Look, if you're like me when I was a kid and you have these stories inside you that you have to put put them down, put them down by all means. You, you have to. You've got no choice. It's, it's in your blood as it was in my blood. But if you actually want to make career of it, Make it the way that you support yourself and your family and you know your your spouse partner going forward. You've got to be cognizant of the fact that this is not a career path that leads to security. If you have the personality where you need security, then you're in the wrong business. Um, you've got to be a bit of a gambler to pursue a career as a writer because it's a career of, uh, of dramatic ups and downs, and I've experienced all of that in my, my career. I've, I've crashed and burned at least twice where I thought my, my career was over. Um, and I was, at one point, I was actually taking real estate courses, wondering if I could get a realtor's license so I wouldn't lose my house because there was no money coming in, you know. I published, at that point, uh, I published four novels, and my fourth novel had sold so badly that nobody wanted to buy my fifth novel. And you can't make a living just selling short stories, um, or you can make a very poor living. <laughs> um, but I persevered. I got I got through all of that. So, but I mean that I'll get back to that. But that that question about the dump truck full of money, uh, you know, I wrote short stories mostly in the seventies. And I did progressively better and better with them. I was nominated for the Hugo Nebula Awards. I won both of those awards. Uh, I spent six years writing short stories. I finally wrote my first novel. It uh, had four publishing houses bidding for it. It went for a very substantial sum of money for my first novel. My second novel got even more money. My third novel got even more money. My fourth novel got my first six-figure advance. Um, and at that point, you know, I bought myself my first new car, up to then I just had used cars, and I moved from the small house I bought to a much larger house with the money from the fourth novel. And uh, so that was probably the first things that I 
that I did when I got that what seemed a dump truck full of money then. <laughs> um, of course, then that fourth novel promptly tanked and then my career was over. And now I had this big house and this new car and a lot of debt. And I was living on credit cards and borrowing and got a second line of credit. And I was, you know, facing the loss of all of this because this, that's what I say there's, there's no security in this business here. It's a business of ups and downs. That doesn't mean you can't be a writer, by the way. It just means you, if you need security, you can't necessarily be a full time writer. The, the history of science fiction, if you study it, is full of some of the great writers of our field who were never full-time writers. Clifford Simak, uh, the, the third man ever to be declared a grand master by the Science Fiction Writers of America, spent his entire life as a small-town journalist in Wisconsin, uh, a reporter and then an editor for his little local newspaper. Uh, and he wrote science fiction nights and weekends and, you know, on his time off and had an incredible body of work, but uh, he was never a full-time writer. Um, even Isaac Asimov, if you read his biography for the first 20 years of his career, he was a, a college biochemist. Uh, he taught biochemistry at Boston College and, and various other things. And again, just wrote and sold short stories and the occasional novel. It wasn't until finally he started, you know, at a, at a certain point in his career, his book was selling well enough. He said, well, maybe I can leave this professor check with Was it? Difficult decision to make because, you know, he was like a tenured professor and that's a job you don't give up easily. But it worked out okay for Dr. Asimov. Um, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily always work out okay. So there is, uh, you know, there's that sort of thing. Now, if you have a trust fund, you don't have to worry about this stuff. Or, you know, if you're lucky enough to, uh, to have a partner who uh, has a, like a steady job, that's always a, a really good... Um, Good partnership here. If, if uh, you know the, the aspiring writer uh, marries or hooks up with someone who has a, a nice steady career uh, where there's a paycheck every week and that pays the mortgage and that pays for the food and that pays for the kids' braces if you need that. And then the writer, every once in a while, sells a book and says, Hey, look, here's $50,000. <laughs> on the income from the steady person, but the steady person has to be willing to live with this, you know, hey, every few years we win a lottery prize, and maybe a small <laughs> one or a big one, but uh, you do it. So, so being a writer and making a, making a, a career as a writer uh, financially is a, is a hazardous kind of uh, thing. So the best You have to separate that from the artistic, <clears throat> artistic stuff, though. At least I believe so. I believe so, you know. So the best tip you can give out to new writers is find themselves a sugar mama or sugar dad. That would be good. <laughs> I don't think he's taking applications. <laughs> Are you taking it? I, mean, I, I guess. I think I'm fairly secure enough now. The dump trucks have gotten larger, so uh, I'm, I'm in good I didn't say which part of the equation you're taking applications for. <laughs> right. All right, so um, uh, just two more questions. Uh, one of them, now that Deadpool is a rated R movie and, uh, and is out there and is fantastic, getting a lot of mainstream uh, traction and whatnot, um, do you think that, uh, that wild cards could ever be brought to the uh, big screen? Well, I'd love to see that. Um, you know, we, wild cards has been optioned 
half a dozen times um, since it first started coming out in the 1980s. But like many Hollywood projects, they, you know, they option them and they give you a certain amount of money, but then they they may develop a script or two, but then they decide not to make it for that <coughs> in our story. So maybe they will make it at some point. Um, there are a lot of superhero things out there right now, um, which is good in a sense, but it's also bad in a sense because there's so much competition that, uh, you know, what's going to make ours different from everybody else's, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't know. But that's out of my hands, but uh, uh, we'll see. And the last question that I'll ask you before we turn it over to your rabid fans, uh, what is the, uh, the, the toughest stain that an Armageddon rag can clean? And feel free to explain what an Armageddon rag is to... What? Me I don't understand that question. Me either. Somebody texted it to me. All right, that's why I'm not listening to this question. I think it was one of my buddies trying to be clever, <laughs> and I just wanted to sound smart. All right, so what we're going to do is uh, we'd like to have you guys come on up here, and if we could kind of form a little bit of a line, and uh, we'll have you just come up here to the uh, to the to this last row of chairs here, if you have any questions for George. Even the sound guy's like, well, okay, I'm going to... Oh, no, he's just checking the other microphone. Okay. <laughs> thought he was going to jump in there. <laughs> Do we have a stand-up mic stand for folks? Or No, you just be able to pass it on back. All right, so what we're going to do is, uh, to keep the flow going, I'd like you guys to ask your question, and then just hand the microphone to the next person, and go ahead and head back to your seat. That way we can keep the flow going, and hopefully we can get to everybody who has a question uh, in the next half hour, okay? So, sir, go ahead and tell us your name and ask your question. Hi, my name is Russell, and I was wondering, is there a character that mirrors somebody that you have know in real life that you may have kind of patterned a character after? As your lawyer, I would advise you not to answer that question. Hypothetically. <laughs> Hypothetically. Yeah, certainly there are. Although, uh, you know, the, the main one that you always draw on, especially for a viewpoint character where you're in their skin, you're hearing their thoughts, is yourself. And uh, all of the characters have a little bit of me in them, but some of them, of course, are closer to me than anyone else, you know. If you look at the wild card books, of course, the great and powerful turtle, Thomas Tudbury, is, is practically autobiographical, except for the part where he develops superpowers. I <laughs> wanted to develop superpowers as a, as a kid, but uh, that I failed to do so. But uh, Tom is essentially me, except for the getting superpowers thing. Well, I would, I would actually uh, say that you do have superpowers. You have the same superpowers as Batman. You have dump trucks full of money. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that would have been a good career, too, to be a playboy crime fighter. <laughs> I, I would have liked that, too, but it was difficult, you know, because first you need the millions, and then... When does Batman sleep? I always wondered about that. He's, you know... Board meetings. He must sleep during the day, because... both. It's not like, you know, you can be one thing by day and be another by night, because being a crime fighter like the Batman is a nightly job. It, you do it in the dark, and being a playboy is a is a job you have to do in the dark. So he has two night jobs and no day job. He must sleep all day. Well, anyway, yes. Cocaine. Guy, Sorry, in, the <laughs> guy in the red. Uh, my name's Cody. I was wondering, since you aren't very interested in Quidditch, what version of fantasy or sci-fi sports ball do you care for? <laughs> 
actually, in the history of science fiction, some fairly interesting uh, fake sports that uh, <laughs> that were better uh, than the British. Uh, there, there's, uh, of course, Rollerball, which is uh, the subject of uh, two movies, one of them much better than the other. But the original Rollerball movie was actually, you know, pretty cool. It's like roller derby turned up to 11. And uh, I think that would have been, uh, been in cool. And as a kid, I read uh, some of the earliest science fiction books I read was the Tom Corbett Space, Space Cadet series. Um, eight books uh, sort of spun off a television show at the time. But I, I, the television show was a little before my time, but I read those, those books. They were, they were juveniles, <laughs> as they called them then. Today they call them YA about, uh, you know, Tom Corbett and his Polaris crew. And they were always playing a game called Mercury Ball. Now, Mercury Ball was uh, basically soccer, but the ball had a vial of mercury inside it. And the mercury would shift, and that would make the ball turn. You know, you'd kick it, but it wouldn't go straight because the mercury would shift, and it would certainly jerk to the left <laughs> or something like that. So uh, I always thought Mercury Ball sounded like a lot of fun. I wonder anyone has, has uh, ever tried it. But. That's a really good question. Before you ask the next question, I was wondering if you could just sign really big. When we get good questions, I want to rip pieces of it off and give it to people. Would you be okay with that? What? They're only getting part of your signature. But he, he should get something. That was a good question. It's just big signature. All right, sir. And uh, what is your name? Uh, my name is uh, Gary. And uh, primarily, I just want to come here and just thank you for doing this, Mr. Martin. Uh, I know you've been under a lot of criticism for your schedule, etc., and the, the book schedule, whatever. But honestly, this is the first time I've had a chance to be in an event with you, and this is what it's all about. Uh, I'm a huge fan, and having the opportunity to be in the same room with you, this is what it's all about. It really is. I can wait 100 years for the next book. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you really like the way I'm going to do it. A million questions I want to ask, but uh, rereading uh, some of the some of the um, uh, Fire and Ice uh, books, I was thinking about Reek. Um, could you talk a little bit about that character? Because honestly, Tyrion is a lot of fun to read and anticipate, but Reek absolutely just tortures me to read those chapters. It just really kind of just gets to me. Can you talk about what? Of course, there are three Reeks. You know, there's the original Reek who is dead. <laughs> And then there was the fake Reek, who was actually Ramsey Bolton, who pretended to be Reek because, uh, you know, he, he didn't want to be executed. <laughs> the final Reek. Right? And then the final Reek, who is, uh, of course, Theon Greyjoy, who is being made into Reek, his personality destroyed by, uh, by torture uh, by Ramsey. You know, I wanted to show the... Uh, disintegration of a personality and the things that can happen, you know, under uh, sufficient amount of torture and, you know, breaking someone's, breaking someone's mind and will. Um, uh, hard stuff to write. Although, to be fair to myself, I, I didn't actually write most of it. I presented most of it in flashback, you know, as opposed to the TV show, which actually showed a lot more of it, but in the books, I, I skip over most of that. I let you think that Theon is dead for a while, and then Reed comes back, and hopefully it takes you a while to realize who it actually is. Thank you. Sure. 
Uh, hi, my name is Frank, and um, I was curious, since you have a movie theater, are there any particular kind of movies or favorite movies that you like to show? Uh, well, um, we show a very eclectic mix of movies at the Jean Cocteau Cinema in Santa Fe. We show old movies and new movies. Of course, I'm a science fiction fantasy guy. We've shown a lot of science fiction and fantasy. We show uh, big commercial movies. We show art house movies. Uh, we like to show movies by small independent filmmakers and by local filmmakers. So we've done all of this. Um, after two and a half years, um, I think having tried all of this, I'm, I'm, my main desire is to show movies that people will come to see. Uh, <laughs> because it's very depressing when I'm paying my staff of four and there's two people in the auditorium watching the movie. <laughs> so uh, we, we try to get movies that are, that uh, people will come to see, and that's not always easy uh, in this day and age. If I don't know what your situation here is, is in Roanoke or whatever town you go into, but if, if you are someone uh, who lives anywhere in, in Virginia or in any state where you have a small, locally owned movie theater, support it, for Christ's sakes because they're having, I can guarantee you, they're having a tough time. The, the chains, Regal, Cinemark, AMC, these big multi-chains are doing everything they can to crush the small independent theater. They won't let them get the big movies. Uh, they have all the clout with the, the studios and the uh, distributors, the major distributors. So, you know, they get, they get locked out of getting the big hits and they have to show what they can get and it's getting harder and harder. And, you know, thousands of them have gone out of business in the last 10 years, and thousands more will soon go out of business unless their communities rally around them. Another thing we're doing in our theater is we're also trying to show a lot of uh, uh, other things besides movies. We have, we have live music, uh, we have magicians, uh, we have burlesque shows, uh, we have the Suicide Girls, they, they were great. Um, we have... Um, you know, and anything that uh, can get people into, we have author events, and you know, it, those of you who, um, I know a lot of you have tried to get my autograph here, um, you can buy my autograph books from the John Cocteau website, uh, you know, we have all of my titles there, and they're all autographed, so you can get those, and you can also get autograph books by all of the authors who have been to the John Cocteau, you know, Neil Gaiman and Michael Shea Bone, and uh, uh, Diana Gabaldon, and uh, you know the list goes on and on. Joe Lansdale was just there last week. Uh, you know he's got a great new show coming out based on his Happen Leonard uh, novels, so we got to see the pilot of that. We do television events too. So you know, buy autograph books. Go to John Cocteau <coughs> Cinema website, and you can uh, get signed books uh, for yourself or your friends. Yes. Hi, um, my name is Kelsey Joe, and um, I guess the question I have is, is there a character from the show that the way they're um, portrayed, mostly aesthetically, potentially personality-wise, that when you were writing, you kind of pictured very differently than how the show did? Thank yeah, you. there's several of them, actually. Um, some, some of the characters in the show are exactly, I mean, they're never going to be physically like I pictured, because, you know, you're not going to get an actor who just happens to look exactly how you described it 10 years before. Um, but there are people who have wonderfully captured the characters, uh, you know, Peter Dinklage's Tyrion is a perfect example. 
Peter's actually considerably better looking than Tyrion. <laughs> Not to mention about a foot taller, but nonetheless, Peter is Tyrion. He's got his nose. Um, but there are differences, and in some cases, the differences are improvements. I mean, I've I've often said to uh, my friend Sibelka Kelly, uh, who portrays Shay, that her Shay is not my Shay. And when I, she first started going, I said, this is all wrong. They're not doing, this is not the characters I wrote it. This character is different. This character is, this character is more interesting than my character. <laughs> <laughs> this character has more levels and more conflicts. And, you know, my character is looking kind of superficial by comparison to, what Sybil did with Shay, so, uh, uh, you know, and so in some cases the characters are improvements, uh, but they are different. Yes, book Shay and, and TV Shay are uh, very different. Yes? Well, actually, before you ask a question, I just wanted to tag off that. Uh, are you worried about, now that the show is caught up to the books, any influence from the movie or from the TV shows into your writing? Because obviously you have very strong voice, you have very strong opinions, stuff like that. But are you worried in any way of any accidental influence? Uh, no, not really. Okay. <laughs> Hi, my name is Marissa, and thank you again for coming to Roanoke. Um, I'm really interested in how many point-of-view characters you have in the Song of Ice and Fire books. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Too many. I'm planning on kill some of them. <laughs> some of them never meant to be point-of-view characters. They just push their way in. And rude and annoying and pushing. Um, I have three in my book, and I originally had four and just had to get rid of one. So it's too much. So how do you balance having so many point-of-view characters? Do you ever go like, oh, crap, I have two aria sections too close together and have to shuffle things around? Yeah, I do that constantly. You'd be amazed how much time I spend reshuffling the order of the chapters, mm -hmm. you know. Um, you know, it was. It, it, hopefully you got a laugh here too many, but it, in some ways it is true. Um, certain events I wanted to portray... Uh, I, I could never quite find the right point of view character to, to capture the scene, so I wound up using multiple point of view characters. You know, they had, I, I, in the last book I talked a great deal on my blog about the Marinese knot. You know, I kept rewriting those chapters in Marine because I, I had like three or four point of view characters coming together and, and you know, who, people who were traveling to Marine, Danny was already in Marine and other people were traveling to Marine and they were arriving and what order should they arrive in. and I would write the chapter, and then I would rewrite the chapter. Now, this one should arrive first, and I would rewrite the chapter, and because that would change everything. And but some of the people would arrive; they didn't speak the language; they didn't really know what was going on. I'm presenting a, I'm trying to present some fairly complicated political maneuverings and plots from the viewpoint of someone who doesn't speak the language or know anybody. Uh, that was difficult. Mm -hmm. So, and I finally. I finally solved the Marinese knot. I finally cut through it after several different approaches by introducing Sir Baristan as a new point character. Um, and that was the solution. But it also gave me another point of view character that I didn't originally intend to be a point of view mm -hmm. character. Um, so, you know, sometimes that's the way it happens. Okay, thank you. Well, it's an excellent question, Marissa. Here you get it, George. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Kinda? <laughs> Maybe an eight. I'm okay. not sure. There you go. <laughs> Hi, my name's Seth. Um, since you said that uh, Tom Tudberry is close to autobiography, let me uh, share my sympathy with you for not being able to get the comic books out of the uh, 
junk, uh, junkyard <laughs> using telekinesis. Uh, that would have been pretty cool. But um, this is going to be a really specific, really weird question, so I apologize uh, before I say it. Um, I'm a big fan of the child ballads. Like I can't stop listening to them or reading them, and there there are some of them that have echoes. Might be the best way to put it in Song of Ice and Fire. So I just wondered if you'd listened to them or heard them, or if they had any any effect on anything, or if I'd just make it up. Not that I know of, but then again, writers aren't always conscious of all the things that influence them. You know, you you read something or you hear something a long time ago, and it roots in your subconscious. And, you're not a don't know it to you think about it, but no, not consciously. Okay, thanks. Sure. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Justin. I Hi. also want to thank you for coming out to see us. My pleasure. I know we've seen a lot of what happens to various star children over the course of the books, but one of them seems to have really fallen off the map. What's going on with Rickon? <laughs> <laughs> Keep reading. <laughs> I definitely plan on it. <laughs> Hi. Hello, um, I'm Mika. Uh, thank you for coming, you know, to respond or anything. Um, I know you said that you liked sci-fi and fantasy, and I was just wondering if, like, superheroes fit into that, and, like, you know, if you've read comic books, and if you Yeah, I was originally, I was one of the guys who started comic fandom back in the 1960s. I was a real comic book fanboy. You can find letters of mine in early issues of the Fantastic Four, and the X-Men, and the Avengers, and so forth. So, saying things like, Shakespeare, move over, Stan Lee has arrived. <laughs> Despite which, Stan Lee never remembers me. I've met the guy about six times. <laughs> no idea who I am. <laughs> Very frustrating. He did publish my letters a long time ago. He's 90 years old. I think there are times he doesn't know who he is. <laughs> Have you heard of this Stan Lee fella? He's fantastic. <laughs> Uh, hi, I'm Jasmine. I was wondering if, uh, when you were working on The World of Ice and Fire, if there were any houses or characters that you were inspired to potentially delve into more, like my personal favorites are Damon Targaryen and Nettles, but I was just wondering. <laughs> what, what, how was I inspired to? Like, um, did writing about all of these houses and characters inspire you to potentially think of more stories going forward? Yeah, it did, actually. I mean, they, when I invent this stuff, it achieves it, a real reality in my in my mind, you know. And I can see I can see stories there. I mean, the world of ice and fire is fake history. Um, the stories aren't fully developed, but there are a number of them that could be fully developed. And I, as writing them, I can I can almost see the novels or the short stories or the things that I I could make of them. Um, if only I was like 40 years younger and had more time to uh, to write all of these stories. But uh, you know, I love the the fact that you can you can think about the stories and maybe make novels of them in your own head. Well, do you plan on uh, releasing any extra content once you have finished? Uh, the, the overall story of Ice and Fire, or are you just going to shut down that universe and move on to another one? You know, I don't think I'll ever shut down Westeros, but uh, I have other stories in other universes that I would like to tell. Um, the World of Ice and Fire, how many of you have, have bought the World of Ice and Fire or have, haven't? Yeah. 
that had an interesting history um, itself. You know, we, we wanted to do, there was this interest in doing a concordance book. Um, and I brought in, because I was busy writing the novels, the main, the main thing, so I brought in Elio Garcia and Linda Ann Thompson of the Westeros website, uh, who have been running it for years, and they, particularly Elio knows, knows the world of Westeros better than I do. He has like an eidetic memory, and he's obsessive. And You know, the idea was we would, we would assemble this book, and I wanted it to be a beautiful book. I wanted, it, I wanted art on every page, and by some of the best fantasy artists in the world. And I said, well, we'll, we'll Elio had already assembled for the Westeros website like little nuggets of of things that he had mined out of the books where I just make a passing reference to, you know, they, they make tapestries in Myrrh, and then you, he had a chapter on Myrrh, they make tapestries there. And, uh, you know, he'd find all this stuff and you could assemble. I said, well, well, we'll do all this. You, you go through all the books and you find everything I've mentioned about history and other lands and and uh, assemble that together, Elio and Linda, and then I will I will flesh that out. I would fill up any gaps, and also I had in my head uh, you know things that were mentioned earlier, untold stories about history and dead kings and vanished kingdoms that I would that I don't know I would ever be able to fit in the books, but somehow they I knew that they had come, and I said, and I'll write some sidebars, you know, because. You know, when you're writing, I mean, there are hundreds of years, thousands of years in some cases, between these historical characters and the present of Ice and Fire. So how often are you guys partying tonight going to start talking about Millard Fillmore? Probably <laughs> Millard, Millard hasn't come up the whole convention. Anyway. Uh, we actually have a panel on <laughs> So, you know, I didn't know if to get in. So I said, well, I'll write some sidebars. And that'll fill in. I thought I'd had these amusing stories about the sidebars. And we we were budgeted for, uh, you know, we signed contracts for this book, and it was supposed to be we would provide fifty thousand words of text, uh, and then the rest would be all this art. So Ilya and Linda got to work, and they they went through all the books and they found all the all the material and they pulled out every reference in the books to anything historical or geographic or something, organized all this material, and they sent me 70,000 words of <laughs> text. So we were already 20,000 words over our budget. <laughs> and then I got to work on the sidebars. I produced 350,000 words of sidebars, <laughs> which is like the size of another novel. <laughs> And I wasn't even done yet. I'd only done about half the kings because as I was making them, I just more and more stuff started coming to me. So then I said, well, this isn't going to do the book. Is of course, we blew deadlines once again. And that's sort of my life. <laughs> the first thing I do when you give me a deadline is I managed to figure out a way to blow it. So we, we had blown several deadlines, and you know, the, this, this book was enormous. And you know, we'd blown through our art budget too, and uh, we had all this art, but. Now I'm saying, well, I wanted art on every page, but now we have so many pages that it's going to be like art every 20 pages and lots of pages of text. Uh, that's not the kind of book I visualized here. So I probably ripped out all of the sidebars that I wrote. Um, and in certain cases, 
you know, a, a novel in, according to the Yugos and the Nebula Wars is anything over 40,000 words. So I've written like four and a half novels worth of material here of, of uh, these, these things here. But I, I took certain chapters like uh, the material on the Dance of Dragons and I gave it to Gordon Dozois and he abridged it severely and we published it in Dangerous Women and we published another chunk in Rogues, the anthology I did. Those are severely abridged versions of what I wrote in my sidebar about, in one case, Damon Targaryen, another one about the Dance of the Dragons, the Princess and the Queen, the rivalry between Queen Alicent and Princess Rhaenyra. Um, and then I gave the same unabridged chunk to Elio and Linda, and they also abridged it but differently than Gardner, to produce even more abridged versions that appeared in World of Ice and Fire, giving the basic facts. But meanwhile, I have the unabridged versions. I have these gigantic, longer versions. And that's something that I do when I finish the novels. I'm going to go back and publish those unabridged versions, but I have to write more of them. And that'll be called Blood and Fire, History of Targaryen Kings. So it'll be an entire book of fake history, probably without the art. Maybe a little art, but it, it won't be like the World of Ice and Fire. It'll be just the histories. I don't know if anyone will like it, but I'm obsessed with telling the story. Yes! ...and treacheries and all that fake history for people. It is really... It's really ironic, though. Uh, I, I love history. I, I, you know, I steal from history freely, and it's helped inspire my books. And... Uh, I steal from history for this stuff all the time, and I turn it up to 11, I twist it, I shuffle it around. And our modern educational system, both in the United States and in the UK, where a lot of this stuff comes from, is really falling on hard times, because as I travel and I meet particularly young people, I found out they, they seem to know more about the Starks and the Lannisters than about the Yorks and the Lancasters, who are the inspirations. They don't know about the real Wars of the Roses, but they know about my fake history. And they, they don't want to memorize the dates of when the Battle of Hastings are, but they know the dates of my fake made-up battles. So, what does this tell us about the modern world? I have no idea. Yeah. All right, we are going to have to put a capper after the gentleman with the uh, gray shirt there. So, uh, unfortunately, after that, we won't be able to have any more folks. As we're winding down, we don't have too much longer. But I am looking forward to the flowcharts of Westeros to eventually come out. So... Hello, uh, my name is Tawana, and I want to say thank you first for writing the books because they were my escape from a not so pretty neighborhood in Brooklyn that I grew up in. Oh, okay. Um, well, thank you. And it's kind of a two-part question. You said that every character has a portion of you. What part does the character of Bran have of you, and why do you find it so hard to uh, write Bran? Bran is the youngest of all the viewpoint characters. That's why it's, he's the hardest to write. And he's also the one most involved with magic. And these are both challenges. When you're writing from the viewpoint of a, of a young child, you can't just write what's happening. You have to write what's happening. You have to make it clear to the reader what's actually happening. And But you have to phrase it from a child's eyes, what does the child think is happening? You know, 
for example, in the in the very first branch chapter where he he well the second branch chapter where he catches Jamie and Cersei having sex, he he's he doesn't know about sex. He's like seven years old and he just sees naked people wrestling or something like that. He's he's not quite comprehending. But you have to do that kind of thing in life. You can't just write what's happening. You have to look at every sentence and say, okay. This is what's happening. I gotta make it clear so the reader understands, but I gotta put it through the, you know, through the ears, the eyes of a of an eight year old or a seven year old. So that's part of the challenge, and the other part of it is is magic. Um, a fantasy novel requires magic, but it has to be handled very carefully. I think obviously you can see in in Ice and Fire. A basically low magic approach to fantasy. Uh, many fantasies are very high magic. Almost all of them are more more high magic than what I do. And to my mind, that's the problem with a lot of them because magic, you know, you can put too much magic in, and and it 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 can potentially destroy a thing. It's it's like a little salt in a stew. A little makes the stew taste better. Too much salt, and you've ruined the stew. So. Thank you. Hey. Hi, uh, Robert from Newport News, Virginia. Just wanted to ask you about the uh, relationship between the Baratheons and the Lannister and the um, Targaryens, because I know the foundation of the Baratheons is from a uh, Oris, who's half Targaryen, the bastard's son. Um, and it seems that when magic goes from the world, the Targaryens, you know, fade, and then when magic on uh, the Baratheons comes to the forefront, and then as magic begins to come back, the Baratheons fade and the Targaryens come to the forefront. So I just wanted to see if you could talk about that a little bit. That's a good question, a good observation. You're getting a mark. <laughs> the, the Baratheons are, are they have a lot of Targaryen blood in them. I mean, you know, not only is the founder of the house himself a, a bastard uh, um, kin to uh, Aegon the Dragon, but uh, there were there were later intermarriages, and most particularly, uh, you know, just a couple generations back. Uh, where the Baratheons, so Robert, once you eliminate the main Targaryen, um, the main Targaryen line, as they did in Robert's Rebellion, Robert has the best claim to the throne by virtue of his Targaryen blood. Um, so there, there are ties. You know, Tar Targaryens married brother to sister and uncle to niece and and cousin to cousin, you know, for, for generations to try to keep their blood pure. But sometimes there there were no convenient siblings or cousins around to marry, and they and they did marry by necessity or in some cases for political alliances and in certain cases even for love with some of the other houses of Westeros. So there are there is Targaryen blood to some extent in not only Baratheons but in the Dornish and in some of the other houses. Yes, Lady Leanna. Hi, my name is Kelly. I'm from Baltimore. Uh, thank you again for being here. Um, one thing I wanted to ask about is I'm really, really interested in the Doom of Valeria. That's something that always grabs me. I'm really into like Doom civilizations. Um, kind of a two-part question. Is there any certain story of a Doom civilization that inspired that for you? And is it possible that we will ever learn any more about that? Well, you'll learn a little more about it. I, I don't think I plan to write a novel about it or anything, but, uh, you know, I think every book does a little more. 
And of course, there's a certain amount of it in the world of ice and fire. Have you, have you seen that? I haven't, but I haven't actually read all of it yet. <laughs> the the uh, what inspired it. Um, you know, there's obviously the Atlantis legends are, are part of it. Um, a little bit of the uh, the destruction of the Minoan civilization, uh, which a lot of people put to a volcanic eruption, and uh, the destruction of uh, the, uh, this is in relatively recent times, the destruction of the pink and white terraces in New Zealand. Are you familiar with that? Um, that just occurred in the, in the late 19th century. The uh, uh, certain area of New Zealand that was uh, eighth wonder of the world. These these beautiful volcanic terraces. Tourists, Victorian tourists, came and bathed in their waters and so forth. And it was one of New Zealand's biggest tourist attractions until one day the surrounding volcano blew and wiped them off the face of the earth. Um, of course, in fantasy, you always turn things up to 11, or even better, to 17. And so uh, I took I took that and Krakatoa and the eruption of Vesuvius and all of these things and turned it up to 11, you know, with a few magical elements and etc. Produced the doom of Valeria. Thank you. Hi, my name is JD. Thank you hey. again for coming to Mysticon. Uh, my question is, with the way you have structured magic in your world and how you just said sometimes stories can have too much magic, how do you so decide how fantastical to make your fantastic creatures? Like, such as you have fire-breathing dragons, yet your manticore is not the human-headed tiger that spits poison barbs, it's a little scorpion. I don't know, I just, you know, go with what feels right to me. Dragons are cool. <laughs> and you know, I, I can't depart too much with dragons because everyone knows what they are. Manticores, basilisks—we we know names, but uh, the, the, they're not nearly as well known as as dragons. So I have a little more freedom to uh, to kind of uh, fool around with them. And there's always this odd thing about fantasy, um, because, you know, Tolkien's fantasy, where you're dealing with imaginary lands, um, they may seem like medieval Europe or England, but they're, they're not medieval Europe and England. So you have to decide what feels right. Like, you know, Tolkien, of course, famously had potatoes in the Shire. And, you know, the Shire otherwise seems very much like medieval England. Well, what the hell are potatoes doing there? Like, <laughs> uh, he obviously liked his taters, so he has, he has Samwise talking about how you want to make your rabbits with some nice taters or something like that. I have corn in my world, and, and uh, it's actual American corn. It's maize. It's not, they had the word corn in the ancient times of medieval, but it, it, it was just a word for grain. It didn't mean maize. Um, but I like corn, and <laughs> so I stuck it in, and uh, does it feel wrong? I don't know. Some readers have complained about it. Oh, you shouldn't have corn because it's medieval. Well, it's not medieval England, it's Westeros. Why can't they have corn? <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
dropping a Snickers bar out in the middle of the street. That, that's always the question. Yeah, it's, it's a matter of what, what feels right. Uh, you know. Could I have all my characters wearing sneakers? Uh, I suppose I could, but that would feel wrong to me. Uh, but, um, you know, but should I have stirrups on the horses? I, I know when the stirrup was invented and how it came about in certain periods in history. If you're writing straight historical fiction, you can't have stirrups. But when you're writing fantasy, you can make your decision as to whether you have it or not. So, yeah. Excellent question. You get a, a tick. <laughs> T.I., come on, get your mind out of the gutter. And our final question, um, make it good. I'll try. It's a little off the beaten path. No um, pressure. I'm Brian, and first of all, I've lived in Roanoke almost all my life, and this is one of the most exciting weekends I can ever remember for you coming here, so thank you for this. This well, has been great. Um, you, when you were talking before, I'd completely forgotten about this. Um, you were talking about your love for science fiction reading, and my personal guilty pleasure is Star Wars novels. I love Star Wars novels. And so when I Star moved into Star Wars the, novels. Yes. Um, when I went into the house that I was living in now, I was putting all my books on the shelf of the New Jedi Order, and I noticed in the preface it had an acknowledgement, thanks to all those in help, including George R. R. Martin. And I was like, really? What was the connection there? If I was Walter John Williams. Um, it might. It, the book was entitled Destiny's Way. I don't remember which uh, author it was because it was a bunch it of. Had to be Walter John Williams. Okay, but I was just wondering what the connection there. Well, I have. I'm a member of a writers group in uh, in New Mexico and was one of the founders of the group. Uh, it's it's all the New Mexico professional writers: Melinda Snodgrass, Vic Milan, Walter John Williams, John Joseph Miller. A lot of the guys who write for uh, my Wildcard series. And, you know, we get together once a month and critique each other's stories. And Walter, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, uh, got a contract to write a Star Wars novel. So he brought that over a six-month period. As he wrote the chapters, he brought them, and we, we critiqued the hell out of them. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he made some changes and didn't make others. So presumably that's what he's, uh, what he's thanking me for. Yeah, it was, it was Walter John Williams. <laughs> there you go. So there we go. All right, guys, thank you so much for coming out. We went a little bit over time. You guys were awesome. Please give it up to the amazing, the awesome, the protector of Italian virginity, George R.R. Martin. If you have feedback for the Beyond the Wall podcast, you can email us at btw at specficmedia.com. You can also leave us a comment on the website. Go to specficmedia.com where you'll find a shiny BTW button. That'll take you right to our page. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, Sharealike, 3.0, Unported License. Feel free to share and remix. Just give us credit and don't charge money for it. <laughs>